Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. All right. Good morning. How's everybody doing today? You guys excited? Esther chapter 5. This has been an incredible series. I've loved following along from the Antelope Valley. Have you guys been loving this series so far? You guys loving it? Ancient Old Testament text bringing transformation to our lives. Couldn't be more excited to be continuing this series for you this morning. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and just tell them I'm glad that you made it this morning. Why don't you turn to the person that you ignored on the other side of you, tell them, I'm glad that you made it this morning. (laughs) Well, go ahead, grab your Bibles, your pens, your notebooks. Before I come to Esther chapter five, can we just wish Marcus a happy birthday? It was his birthday on Tuesday. So let's give Marcus a hand. I don't know where he is right now, but happy birthday, Marcus. Marcus has been so helpful. Anytime I've needed help or assistance with anything, he's been one of the first people to help. Christy's been great. Everybody's been helping us launch a campus in the Antelope Valley. So couldn't be more thankful to partner with you, South Valley. Uh, The book of Esther is a personal favorite of mine because it challenges us to remember two truths about Christianity, two truths that on this particular morning, in light of what's happened in Israel and what's going on in the Middle East, are of the utmost importance for us. And the first truth that the book of Esther teaches us is that God is present with his people. In hard times, we are tempted to ask that question, God, where are you? And the book of Esther says, I'm here, and I've been here all along. Another pivotal foundational truth that challenges us to remember this morning is that God has good plans for his people. In the hard times, we might ask, God, how is this situation going to work out? And the book of Esther teaches us that he will accomplish his purposes for our lives. Amen? So we've seen that God's hidden presence and covenant faithfulness to his people is evident. And Esther chapter 5, in many ways, is the climax of the story. Last week, Esther made that bold, bold statement, if I perish, I perish. And now the time has come for her to go uninvited to the king. There's been three days that have passed where collectively we're holding our breath at this point. Our minds are already racing. What's gonna happen to Esther? We already know that the decree has been sent. We already know that everyone is in danger. There's a huge risk that is about to take place. And we're curious if Esther is going to follow through on her bold statement. Esther chapter five is one of those chapters that has us on the edge of our seat, hoping that things are gonna work out, hoping that we're gonna breathe a sigh of relief. Now, I wanna start with a question this morning. How many of you guys here this morning um, in the worship center and in our house churches, how many of you, by a show of hands, love suspense? Anybody in here just love suspense? Okay. (laughs) How many of you guys, by a show of hands, hate suspense? Okay, 
My wife, Nicole, uh, she'll be at next service and she has so many great qualities. She's gentle, she's beautiful, she's loving. But one of her character flaws is that if we're watching a movie with too much suspense, she will go online and look up the ending <laughs> and spoil it, right? So I still wanna be invited to your guys' movie nights. We still wanna be included. I won't let it ruin it for you guys. Uh, I'm not usually a big fan of spoilers, but in Esther chapter five, God comes through. God comes through in the biggest moment for Esther. I'm gonna try to convey with my whole heart this morning just the gravity of this situation. I wanna try to convey the importance of faithfulness and I wanna just remind you about the, the goodness of God. And my hope is that this morning we grow as servants and that we grow as worshipers of Jesus because the one who came through for her is the same one who can come through for you. God does come through for his people. Here's my thesis this morning. God comes through and you're called to be faithful. God comes through and you're called to be faithful. I've broken down Esther chapter five into three important scenes. Esther's approach is scene one, Esther's plan is scene two, and Esther's adversary is gonna be scene three. And the title for this morning's sermon is The Favor of the King. Let's pray and we will get into the word of God. Father in heaven, I pray that you would encourage us this morning. As Ricky mentioned, there are countless times in life where everything appears to be following, falling apart. And I would just ask that you would give us encouragement this morning, that you would call us to boldness. I pray that through your word, you would strengthen our faith, that you would nourish our souls, and that all of our satisfaction and contentment would be found in your son, Jesus. We submit to you, God, and we want to be used by you. And so I just pray that we'd be open to your plans and purposes for our lives. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Turn with me to Esther chapter five, verses one through two. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and stood at the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw, es saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor, circle it, highlight it, underline it. She won favor in his sight and he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his Hand And then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. If you're taking notes this morning, the first scene is Esther's approach. And the lesson that we take away from this scene is that Christians are called to intercede in life's problems. I want to give you a biblical definition of intercession. Intercession is the act of intervening or mediating between differing parties, particularly the act of praying to God on behalf of another person or persons. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as a mediator. First Timothy chapter two, verse five says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, Jesus is described as making intercession for his people. Hebrews chapter seven, verse 25 says, consequently, he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make what? Intercession for them. Jesus 
is a mediator and Jesus practices intercession. And I wanna ask you this morning, how often do you make intercession and take action to help people? How often do you make intercession and take action to help people? What is your prayer life like this morning? In the book of Esther, she has been praying for three days, making intercession for the people of Israel, much like we did this morning. We lifted them up in prayer and made petitions to God. And in this scene, Esther shows us there's a relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. Ricky calls him Haman the Horrible. It's a clever name. Haman the Horrible's plot needs to be reversed. And so Esther prays to God and then Esther moves into position to be used by God. Esther's fasting led to faithfulness. Esther does not let go and let God. This is not country music. Esther prays and then Esther acts. Her fasting led to faithfulness and we're told that she puts on her royal robes in this passage and she goes to the inner court of the king. And there's this contrast here between Esther and Vashti. You guys learned about Vashti in Esther chapter one. According to Jewish tradition, Vashti was executed for not coming when she was invited by the king. Do you remember that? And now in Esther chapter five, there's a contrast where Esther is now facing a death sentence because she will go to the king when uninvited. And the deck is completely stacked against her, isn't it? We know the law of the Persians. We looked at Esther chapter four, verse 11. It says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if, he, if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Esther had every reason to turn around. The king is always on a power trip. You guys know anybody like that? The law is not on her side. Sound familiar? Things have changed between the two of them. And plus, this is a life or death situation. Esther would have approached and she would have been standing at a distance and the king would have been sitting on his throne. And you can imagine this is the longest moment of her life when they lock eyes for the first time. And she's wondering and thinking to herself, is he going to give me a warm welcome or is he going to flip out? This is a moment of risk. This is a moment of uncertainty. This is a moment of danger. And then finally, we're told that the king holds out the golden scepter to Esther. And we finally, right, we breathe that sigh of relief because he shows her grace and mercy. Karen Jobes, in her commentary on this book, she said, had the king not extended his mercy, her execution or banishment would have been an ominous sign of what is to come for the Jews. But on the third day, you guys know God has a habit of moving on the third day? On the third day, in the throne room of the king, Esther was granted life instead of death, and the golden scepter foreshadows the deliverance of her people. Esther intercedes for people. And in this scene, I want to teach you two big truths that we see about God. 
And the first is this. God does not give easy assignments. Ricky mentioned it. I'm in seminary, and I don't have a favorite professor yet because none of them give easy assignments. In the Christian life, what I want you to know is that all the assignments of significance require a willingness to sacrifice on our end. And God does not give easy assignments. Esther hasn't been perfect in this story, but instead of choosing to be silent in this moment, she chooses to be selfless. Being selfless is being more concerned with the needs and wishes of others than your own. Esther does not have an easy assignment, but she's willing to sacrifice for the good of people and the glory of God. And the question is how does her boldness challenge us? I would say that Esther's boldness challenges us to embrace our own difficult assignments. One of the biggest problems that I see in church today is what I call cafeteria Christianity. Okay, cafeteria Christianity is something that we have to push back on. Cafeteria Christianity is when we pick and choose when to be obedient. We want the easy assignments, not the hard assignment. It's, it's when we have this mindset towards what God calls us to, where we get to decide what is best instead of seeking to obey the whole counsel of his word. And so as his people, we're called not just to, you know, pick and choose. We don't just say we're going to come to church and we're going to enjoy the singing, but not the sermon. We don't come to church and say we're just going to be here for the encouragement, but not the accountability. We don't pick and choose and say we're going to be here for the big events, but community groups forget about it. We don't pick and choose and say, I, I'm willing to serve, but it can't be too big of a sacrifice. You got one hour, Ricky. Give you one hour a week, brother. This is it right here. We don't pick and choose when we're going to serve. And I think too often what happens in Christianity is that we talk ourselves out of obedience. You know what I'm talking about? We, we got reasons in our head. Esther had reasons to turn around, but she didn't. And I find that sometimes we're talking ourselves out of what God calls us to. Let me give you a couple of uh, small examples and I'll give you some personal examples. God calls us to do more in the city of Lemoore or in the city of Hanford and, and we think to ourselves, we, we start doing this thing in our head where we start rationalizing. We can't do anymore, we're already doing, doing so much. There's no way we could accomplish anything else. I don't know what Pastor Ricky is thinking. Right? Or God gives us an assignment to launch a campus in the Antelope Valley. And we start to think to ourselves, we don't have enough resources to do that. We're never going to be able to, to pull that off. He doesn't give easy assignments. He gives hard assignments. Let me give you some personal examples. Maybe you guys have experienced these. God may give us an assignment to get involved in a conflict between two people that we love. That ever happened to anybody in here? You guys ever been there? That is a daunting situation, isn't it? Anybody get a little nervous when that happens? Heart start beating a little fast, start thinking, you know what? There's no way I'm touching this with a 10-foot pole. Anybody been there? Right? We say to ourselves, right? We say things like, that's only going to make things worse. Or there's no point in getting involved. And we act like we can see the whole picture. And the problem with that way of thinking, the problem with that mindset is that we can't predict the future, can we? We can't predict the outcome, right? Isaiah 46.10 says, there is one God 
who declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand. I will accomplish my purpose. God alone knows the future. What about this one? God may give us an assignment to call out sin in the church to pursue holiness. Those are always awkward conversations, aren't they? We start talking to people about areas where we see them backsliding, areas where we see them going astray, and that can lead to some difficulty, can't it? Anybody ever been there? I think, I think so. I think we've all been there, and we rationalize to ourselves, like, I don't want this assignment, God, right? And we start justifying, and we're like, we're all a work in progress. I'm just going to love those people. It's like, nobody was saying not to love them. Nobody was saying I wasn't a work in, in progress, I think a lot of times when that's the situation, you know what the real issue is, is fear of man. Fear of man. In Proverbs 29, 25, it says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe, right? God alone knows the future. God alone is to have our fear. And so South Valley, I just wanna encourage you that no matter what assignments you get, I wanna challenge you to be faithful when you don't know the future and when you don't know the outcome and when it might cost you with people like Esther. There's no easy assignments, you know? And, it, and it's personal. Like there's things that are happening in the community. Um, there are things that are happening in the world and it all hits so close to home. And it's not just like, on the other side of the world, it's, it's here, right? In our own interpersonal relationships where there's work to be done and assignments to be embraced. And I would just say that, you know, that God may give you an assignment to, you know, step into a marriage that's fallen apart deal with some immaturity. God may give you an assignment to step into a family member's addiction, deal with some substance abuse. He might give you an assignment to deal with a teenager's depression and, and walk them through some self-harm and help to get them to the other side. And, and that's not gonna be easy, but, but we know that God doesn't always give easy assignments, does he? And he gives Esther a hard one. And I think to equip the church, I would be remiss not to tell you he's gonna throw you some hard assignments and to be ready for them, amen? Now, the second thing that we learn about God in this scene is, and this is what helps us to embrace the hard assignments, but it's that God can change the heart of a king and therefore he can change the heart of anyone, okay? Proverbs 21.1 says that uh, the, in the king's hands, or the, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it whatever way he wills. That's really good news. Esther is described as having favor with Ahasuerus. She used to win favor through compromising her faith, and now she wins favor through her commitment to God. And although God's name is not written in this book, it's pretty obvious that he's working behind the scenes, isn't it? He's working behind the scenes in her life. He's working behind the scenes in my life. And Here's what I want you to know. When you believe that, like when you believe that God is working behind the scenes in your life and that he's faithful and that he could turn hearts as easily as he can turn water, you're gonna be such a more, you're gonna be a more willing servant. You're gonna be open to being a vessel and an instrument in his hands because you, you know it's not up to your gifts, your power, your wisdom, right? Not my gifts, not my power, not my wisdom. It's him. And he's at work, but there's something that he's called me to be faithful to. I'm going to take responsibility. And in that moment, I'm going to pray that I would experience the sovereignty of God for him to bring about a reversal 
of the situation, that he might show us favor. So I want you to think about that image for a second. As easily as water of a stream is turned is how easily God turns the heart of a powerful and prideful man, man like a hazardous. He's, anybody have to do the dishes this week? Anybody do the dishes this week? I did, it was awful, right? But you walk over, right? As easily as you could change the direction of the water coming out of the faucet and redirect it, that's how fast you can change the heart of a king. Anybody love to camp in here? Any, anybody love camping in here? As easily as we could go set up rocks in a stream and redirect the water, even faster, God could redirect the heart of a king like a hazardous. So I'm gonna ask you, do you really believe that he comes through? You know what I'm saying? Do you really believe he comes through, that he turns hearts, that you have difficult assignments, but that he might step in and show you favor and work behind the scenes to bring everything to its proper place? It's good news, isn't it? It's really good news. So scene one, Esther approaches the king, intervening and embracing a hard assignment, but she experiences a miracle having favor with the king. Coincidence? Not a chance. God is on the move. Okay. The second scene, if you're taking notes today, is Esther's plan. Look with me at Esther chapter 5, verses 3 through 8. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. The feast is already prepared. That should show you her faith. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom. It shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is, if I have found favor in the sight of the king, it shall please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them. And tomorrow I will do as the king has said. The lesson from this scene that we take away is this. Christians seek wisdom to navigate a fallen world. See, Esther is not out of the woods yet. I know we have a good military community in Lemoore and Hanford in the Antelope Valley, so this will be easy to understand. The mission is not complete until every objective in that mission is accomplished. Objective number one for Esther was making contact with the king. Objective number two is for Esther to lay her request before the king in a strategic way. This request has to happen at the right time in order for it to be successful. And you might ask the question when you're reading Esther chapter five, and you should ask this question, is why doesn't she just come out and tell the king about the plot of Haman the Horrible? Like, time's running out. The date has been set. Like, where's the urgency? Why go to two feasts? Why not just come out with the plot? Ahasuerus has already said, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom. And that's a big statement, isn't it? We're talking about Persia, 127 provinces. We're talking about three continents, five million square miles of land. You guys imagine his property during inflation at this time of the year? He'd be in real estate, 
Carly would be making a killing. She'd be doing good. Ricky would be doing good. It's not a phrase that's meant to be taken literally. It's an idiom that was used by the Persians. It's similar to us telling our spouse, I'll give you the world or I'll do anything for you. Now, for those of us who've been married in the room for more than five minutes, we know that you don't say it unless you mean it, right? Esther knows that that phrase, I'll give you up to half of my kingdom, is just a formal expression in the time is not right. And there are some liberal commentaries that accuse Esther, because she has a plan here, of resorting to scheming and methods of the world to reverse the plot of Haman the horrible. But the problem with that interpretation is that it ignores context. What was Esther doing before she went to approach the king? She was praying and she was fasting. How many of you here this morning have ever had a situation where you just cried out to God and said, I don't know what to do? You ever been there? Esther was having one of those moments, God, I don't know what to do. We're gonna pray, we're gonna fast for three days and then I'm going to take action. I would be willing to bet at the top of her prayer request, was the prayer for wisdom, because that is what the children of God do in times of need. James chapter one, verse five says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to them. Or a better translation, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without contempt. It means that when you go to God, and you tell him, I don't know what to do, or I'm not sure how to move forward, he doesn't reprimand his children and say, you should have it figured out by now. He doesn't reprimand his children and say, you should already know what to do. No, he's a father and he generously gives wisdom and he wants to hear from his children when they're in times of distress. And one of the best pictures of God's posture towards his children is captured by this phrase, incline your ear to me. We hear this phrase all the time in the book of Psalms, don't we? Incline your ear to me, O God. Do you know what the psalmist is asking for in their distress, in their lament? Wisdom. They ask God to hear. When they say incline your ear, they're saying, God, would you stoop down? Would you get on my level? I got a little son, his name's Noah. He'll be here at the next service disrupting everything. And uh, no, seriously, stay for a second service. Um, but it, you can imagine Noah coming up to me, right? And just tugging on his dad's shirt, right? Or he'll come up and he'll try to like grab at my hand if he wants me to, to pick him up. And a little later in life, when he wants to tell me something, he'll tug and he'll grab. And, and when you incline your ears of father, what do you do? You stoop down. You get on their level. That's the posture of God towards his children, the psalmist, us. God, would you incline your ear? That's what Esther was doing before she went in to see the king. I don't think she's resorting to scheming or manipulating. I think she heard from the Lord what she needed to do and moved forward with a plan that was wise and well thought out. Amen. Another problem with that interpretation is that it ignores, the, it, it ignores the importance of stewardship. Let me ask you guys a question. Does the presence of a plan mean that you're not trusting God? 
No, of course not. Um, the presence of a plan doesn't mean you're not trusting God. Have you guys ever had one shot? Anybody in here ever had one shot to do something? Like, uh, like last play of a game? Anybody ever been involved in the last play of a game? Anybody ever have a one-time job in- interview? You wanted to play for that last, that last snap, didn't you? Right? You had a plan when you went in for the interview. The, the presence of a plan does not mean that you're not trusting God. Rather, the presence of a plan means that you're being a good steward of the opportunity that you have from God, right? So Esther has a plan, and it is no sin to have a plan. I saw Ricky did a, a series in Proverbs for South Valley and in Proverbs, you guys know it, in the Proverbs, the wise man is always described as being prudent. It means that he's thoughtful. Um, and the foolish man in Proverbs is always described as being hasty. It means he gets into things in a rush, right? How many, how many of you guys ever rushed into a situation and made it worse? <laughs> Come on, amen, somebody. I know there's some amens out here. If you can't say it, then have the person next to you say it for, for you, okay? Esther doesn't rush into a plan. You rush into a job, you might be in trouble. You rush into a toxic relationship, you might be in trouble. You rush into fill in the blank, you might inadvertently cause damage. Here's the thing. Christians intervene in situations just like Queen Esther, but we practice wisdom to be good stewards of the moment. Esther submits her plans to God, and when she doesn't let an urgent situation stop her from being prudent. And I think biggest mistake of all is that liberal commentators miss the transformation of Esther. Esther's plan is to expose the plot of Haman. And she's got some strategy in this, doesn't she? Come to the first feast, come to the second feast, And that reminds me of Matthew 10, 16, when Jesus says, look, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be uh, shrewd as serpent and innocent as doves. Esther is going to go to the king and confront Haman at the right time. Don't we try to do things at the right time? I feel like I learned this when I was in like junior high or high school. Like I, I knew there was good times to ask my dad for money right? All the junior hires are like, yes, preach, you know? I knew when I was in high school, there was a good time to ask to borrow the car. And none of those times were ever when my dad just got home from work. Okay? Amen, right? None of those times were ever before the grass was cut. None of those times were ever before the cars were washed. There was some strategy that was involved. See, Esther's got a strategy. King Ahasuerus He loves a good feast. This guy's been feasting every time we see him in the book of Esther. Haman the horrible, he loves being popular. He loves to be included. He doesn't show up to something, he's got FOMO. That's fear of missing out. Esther is as shrewd as a serpent and innocent as a dove. There's no need to read the Esther of chapter two into the Esther of chapter five. Right? You ever notice how sometimes people get hung up on another person's past and they always define them by their past instead of what they're doing in the present and miss the work of God in their life? That's what I think they do to Esther. Anybody in here got a past? Yeah? Anybody in here in our house churches? Anybody got the kind of past where if I took off this microphone and asked you to share your testimony, Ricky might start stressing out a little bit? <laughs> Anybody got a past like that in here? Some of you, I love you guys if you got that kind of past, okay? 
So much of our character changes when we start being used by God. I, I just, if you feel stuck, I would encourage you start serving. I went, when I really started serving, I think that's one of the ways that God used to change my character the most because I never wanted to be labeled a hypocrite or cause anybody to stumble because my life wasn't in line with the truth. But when we start being used by God, there's something about that where he transforms us into being vessels for, for him. And we're not perfect. Uh, we're broken and weak vessels, but I think when we step out in faith and we say, God, use me, there becomes this willingness to submit other areas of our life to him as well. So scene two, Esther's plan starts to unfold. Ahasuerus loves a feast. Haman craves popularity. Esther keeps her friends close and her enemies closer. She sought wisdom and didn't rush the decision. The king and Haman will come back tomorrow. And this is gonna allow for two very important events to happen in the book of Esther. The building of the gallows and the king's sleepless night. Maybe she knew what she was doing. The lesson, uh, or the third scene, if you're taking notes today, is this. Esther's adversary, this is scene three. Esther chapter five, verses nine through 14. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath, remember his name, against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and he went home and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king honored him. He loves him some him and how he advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me come to the king to, or come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me. So long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate, then his wife Zeresh and all his friends said to him, this is an echo chamber, let a gallows 50 cubits high be, joy, be made in the, in the morning. Tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast. This idea pleased Haman. Of course it did, right? And he had the gallows made. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> How fast can you go from zero to 60? My father-in-law, he has a GT3, and it goes from like zero to 60 in three seconds. I see in this passage, Haman goes from having a joyful and glad heart to anger and wrath in an instant. He was just at this celebration with the queen and now here he is on his way home and everything is shattered. This is a man who gives us a portrait of pride. And when I was thinking about this uh, passage this week, I asked myself the question, what would Haman's Instagram account look like? What, is, what would his account look like? I think if Haman the Horrible, thank you, Ricky. I think if Haman the Horrible had an account, everything on it would be about his power, his success, his promotions, and the relationships that he uses just to get ahead. You can tell a lot about a person by what they post on social media. That might seem controversial to some of you, but a lot of times you can open up somebody's page and you can see if they're uh, politically driven. You can see if 
Um, there, there's any issues that are unhealthy. Sometimes you see good things like them loving their family or, or being involved in church. I think Haman the Horrible's Instagram account would just be a, a shrine of idolatry to himself. Look at my success. Look at my power. Look at my promotions. Those are the places he looks for significance. And I would just challenge you this morning, right? It's easy to read this passage and be like, ah, oh, well, I'm not Haman the, Haman the Horrible. Thank goodness. <laughs> Thank goodness. But we do have a tendency to look for significance in the wrong places, right? Like this guy loves to brag. He has, one, he has a great day by all accounts. And on the way home, he sees Mordecai and he snaps and he calls a powwow. And the answer to him uh, in his insecurity and in his defensiveness is build a gallows. And not just like small gallows, but build gallows that are 70 feet, high, five, 70 feet high. Like that's bigger or about as high as this room. Like build something that big and we're going to make a spectacle out of Mordecai not bowing down. And I think for us, one of the things that's convicting in this passage is verse 13. If you could isolate verse 13 for me, this is what it says. All this gives me nothing or no satisfaction, according to the NIV translation, as long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. The ESV renders it nothing. Do you guys let things take your joy? Do you let things take your peace? He's looking for his significance in all of the wrong places. I would challenge you this morning, don't, don't let your value, your worth, and your satisfaction be based on other people's opinion of you. Don't, don't freak out. Don't fly off the handle. Put all your hope and contentment in Jesus. Amen? Haman's a portrait of pride. Um, and, and I want to ask this question is, is how do we pursue humility? How do we as believers pursue humility when we see somebody like this in scripture who's filled with pride? Let me give you three quick ones. Humility, but we pursue humility by being a servant. Prideful people don't care who they hurt. Build the gallows. Prideful people use people. Prideful people manipulate people. Prideful people intimidate other people. That is what Haman does. If you want to pursue humility in the Christian life, you have to remember that you're called to be a servant. Why is that? Mark 10, 45, for the son of man came not to be served, but to what? Serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Finally, another way that we pursue humility is by inviting healthy pushback in our lives. Pride does not seek wise counsel. Pride loves the echo chamber. Pride loves being able to, to have a bad day or have a little bit of conflict with someone, go home and call your closest friends over and just say, I'm right, right? We pursue humility by opening up ourselves to healthy pushback. And I just ask you this morning, who have you given permission to, to push back on you? Who have you given permission to? If iron is supposed to sharpen iron, then we should invite that and welcome that from our brothers and sisters and not be so easily offended when somebody comes to us and points out an area that we need to change. Haman is like, I'm offended. And they're like, build the gallows. And you're like, what? Like that was your response to that? We pursue humility by practicing sober judgment. Pride is always gonna be blind to his faults. You know, this whole scene is playing out right before Haman's eyes and he can't even see it. 
Like it doesn't even cross his mind for a moment that he might be overreacting or that he might be the problem. Pride is blind to its faults. I love what Paul David Tripp says in his book, Instruments in the Hands of a Redeemer, in the Redeemer's Hands. He says, my self-perception is as accurate as a carnival mirror. You guys go to the fair this year? You guys seen a carnival mirror recently? How it distorts you? He says, that, that's how my self-perception is. I love Mahaney. He says in his book on humility, he says, without others to help me see myself more clearly, I'll listen to my own arguments, believe my own lies, and buy into my own delusions. We pursue humility by being a servant, by inviting pushback, and by an honest assessment, sober judgment in our lives. This, this is a beautiful passage that's unfolding here. Let me recap. Scene three, Esther's plan is unfolding on schedule. And then we get a wrench in the plan when gallows had been made to make a spectacle of Mordecai. It looks like in the morning, he's gonna meet his maker. However, that night, there would be a sleepless night. And it is not a coincidence. No, that's not even a chance. It is just the beautiful truth of the providence of God. Amen. Ricky will preach on that sleepless night next week and continue the unfolding of Esther's plan. But let me give you a quick summary of application for today. As you navigate big assignments from God, remember that you have favor from the true king, so don't get cold feet. Remember these three things. Christians intercede in life's problems we don't ignore. If there's anything that you need to address this morning, I would challenge you to reach out to that person and make it right. Number two, Christians ask God for wisdom. We don't rush. When we rush into things, we make it worse. It was no sin for Esther to have a plan. And I would just encourage you to be a good steward of the moments that God trusts you with. Number three, Christians pursue humility. We don't trust our heart. Our heart is deceitful. We're prone to going back to living according to the flesh instead of living in the spirit. So I wanna to close today by simply making an invitation for those of you in the room to receive Christ uh, for the first time. This sermon today was largely geared to encourage all of the believers in the room and to build you up and to edify you. But if you're here this morning and you don't believe in Jesus, I wanna encourage you today that today could be the day where you experience the forgiveness of sins and you're granted eternal life. I'm so mindful of Romans 5, 6 through 8. This is my favorite verse for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ did what? Died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though for perhaps a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that is really good news because you can't save yourself Esther and Mordecai were able to pray and to pull people together to intercede on behalf of the Jews to bring about a physical deliverance, but only Jesus can bring about a spiritual deliverance and give you new and eternal life. Scripture says that you're dead in your trespasses, but Christ came into this world so that you would have life, you would have it abundantly. And I wanna encourage you to believe in him this morning if you don't believe. And, and I wanna press just a little bit on you if you don't believe this morning. And, and here's why. Over the years in ministry, I have 
tirelessly counseled and talked with people who said they don't believe in God because their life is hard, their life is falling apart. They doubt the goodness of God. Let me tell you something this morning. Esther had a hard life. She was an orphan. She was living in exile. She was forced to be part of the king's harem. Surely if anybody had a reason to not believe, then it would be Esther. But when the, time's, when the time comes and it's her time to step into a bold moment and, and step into faith and not be a lukewarm believer and a, and a lawbreaker, she, she does it. And, and a lot of people in this room have had, had a hard, hard life. But here, here's the good news. God is present with his people. He has good plans for his people. He sent his son into the world to die for you, to rise for you so that you could have new life. You don't have to be on the sideline forever. You don't have to be a skeptic forever. Today can be the day where you leave with certainty knowing that you're forgiven, not because of anything that Esther did or Mordecai did, but because something that Jesus did, amen? Like everybody in this room's had a hard life. Come on. Everybody in this room's had a hard life. If you've had a hard life, I'm, I'm not saying so what, I'm saying come to the Savior. That's what I'm saying. I'm not saying so what, I'm saying come to the Savior. So if that's you this morning, we're gonna have a time where we just worship during this song. And if after this song, uh, when Chris is through praying us out, if you wanna come forward and you wanna pray and, and receive life and salvation and forgiveness, make today the day. And, and if you're a believer in the room today and it's a day to rededicate your life and say, you know what? I've had cold feet for too long. God's got big assignments for me. And today's the day to rededicate. Then do it, then, then, then do it. Make today the day. God loves you. He wants close, intimate relationship with you. Let me, let me pray for us and we'll respond in song. And, and by God's grace, maybe some people this morning uh, will experience salvation. Father in heaven, thank you for a beautiful morning. Man, this is a beautiful passage. And I know that we've taken a lot of time this morning and I hope that it's been an encouragement to people at our house churches, people in the worship center. I love you, God, and just pray that you would use this morning and it's in this sermon that it'd be memorable for people and it'd be a turning point in people's lives to be closer uh, with you and begin a relationship with you. We love you and we thank you for your son, Jesus. And all of God's people said, amen. I love you guys. Thanks for letting me share this morning.